0: Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how are you doing today, sir?
1: Oh, great. It's always uh, good talking to you.
0: Yes, likewise, man. A um, lot to talk about, by the way. We got three chapters to cover today. And, you know, even though they basically all cover the same thing, we're going to have, I guess, a variety of things we could talk about. Uh, This is, what is this? This is Matthew 3, Mark 1, and Luke 3, basically covering the introduction of John the Baptist and his ministry. Uh, This will be our first time covering, what do you call it, Uh, the book of Mark. So I just wanted to see Mm -hmm. if you wanted to say anything to introduce the book of Mark, since this will be our first time covering it. Uh, The only thing I really feel to say about it is that this is this was written before the other gospels more than likely and matthew and luke probably used mark as a source text but is there anything else you want to say about the book of mark
1: no that's probably it i mean issues of source criticism and redaction criticism are we don't need to teach that we don't need to waste because that's uh that's readily accessible elsewhere but like you said the Consensus might be too strong of a word, but the, the, the way things lean in the scholarly community is with the two-source hypothesis that Matthew and Luke wrote independently of each other mm-hmm. and both drew upon Mark and upon a hypothetical body of material that's now called Q, which explains some of the precise agreement in wording between Matthew and Luke on material that's not found in Mark. So, Matthew and Luke independently used Mark and Q. And John is kind of doing his own thing separately from all of them, although the passion narrative is kind of similar in all four gospels. Mm. So, there may be some underlying tradition behind all four of those. But most scholars assume the priority of Mark, that Mark was written first. And if you assume that, then you can say, well, what was Mark doing uh, when he wrote? And then what was Matthew doing? when he used Mark and Q and you can see what his editorial agenda is, what his priorities are, what he's trying to do. And the same thing with Luke mm. and you can see how they've modified Mark or how they didn't modify Mark can give you a clue as to what's going on and seeing, seeing what I love. I love looking at human fingerprints. I I'm, I'm so glad that we don't actually have a gospel written by Jesus because Ironically, we get more out of someone's testimony of Jesus. We get to see it filtered through their life experience, how the kingdom of God broke into that person's life and, and changed everything, right? Like I think that's even more powerful because then we filter it through their experience and we fold in, kind of like a snowball accumulates. Like I just, I think the, some people think the accumulation is, uh, oh no, it's impure and it's not original. But I, I like the fact that we have traditions Um, and generations of of records of people's experiences of God, and that's actually what I find really cool. Mm. I did want to talk about two introductory thingies real quick that um, are more general. One is, there is a new resource called the St. Andrew's Encyclopedia of Theology, and you spell encyclopedia the British way, because they're, of course, in my native Scotland, and this is intended to be an open source, uh peer-reviewed, free, Wikipedia-esque. It's, it's like where do we where do people get good good knowledge? And here's one source. It's not finished, but the article on queer theology in the St. Andrews Encyclopedia of Theology is really, really good. Like it is comprehensive and good. I learned I learned from it and I thought I was familiar with that the you field. Knew but anyway. <laughs> There's – uh, it's really good. It's really good. And so I'm sure on issues of Christianity, uh, th- there's – yeah, it's great. Check out these things for, for initial questions. They're going to be adding things on Islam and Hinduism and Judaism, I think. I, I don't know what their schedule is. But anyway, so I'm excited to see where that project is going. Secondly, I want to point people towards a new resource. There is a – genre of books called New Testament introductions and basically in a beginning survey course which you probably had one of these they had um they have a book that goes through and talks about the each book of the New Testament and the author and the dating and the high and the perhaps the sources that were used the historical context the um You know whether this whether the book is is, is single or like unified or is it's a compilation of different things? Just basically all of the. It's not really commentary. I mean, there may be some commentary in it, but it's more like name, date, and place of authorship, and all this other stuff, and um, kind of themes and outlines. And there is one of these called "Toward Decentering the New Testament," colon a reintroduction by two scholars named Mitzi J. Smith and Young-suk Kim. And here's what the Amazon description is. Now I haven't read this. I've looked through it, but I I'm not responsible for the whole content, but it seems like a really good source for many of our listeners. Here's what it says. Toward decentering the New Testament is the first introductory text to the New Testament written by an African-American woman biblical scholar and an Asian-American male biblical scholar. Uh, Kim is from Korea. This text privileges the voices, scholarship, and concerns of minoritized non-white peoples and communities. It is written from the perspectives of minoritized voices. The first few chapters cover issues such as biblical interpretation, immigration, Roman slavery, intersectionality, and other topics. Questions raised throughout the text focus readers on relevant contemporary issues And encourage critical reflection and dialogue between student teachers and teacher students. Hmm. Close quote. So I think this is, is and here's another thing about people ask for like references and recommendations and stuff. And my view as a scholar is that when we recommend stuff, it doesn't mean a wholesale Uh, approval of everything because scholarly work is you need to read people you disagree with you need to read people from different perspectives and so when I tell people to read something that doesn't mean I'm I'm going to agree with everything or disagree right that's not the point but I think engaging these voices and I can't even think of other New Testament introductions that are written by non-white people Um, I know some women some white women but I can't even, right? So this is a very interesting book. I've I've looked through it. I haven't read it. But keep that in mind. That could be a way of jump-starting your New Testament year this year, especially if you've never encountered any source like that. Mm. The second thing I want to talk about is about record-keeping. And it's sort of a follow-up to what I talked about last time about why is Derek able to... Have grace for the New Testament authors, even though they wrote things around slavery or women or things that get used against LGBT people. Or mm-hmm. um, There's anti-Jewish material in the New Testament. There's like, what do we do with all that stuff? And how am I able to have an option three approach to the New Testament? But what's up with um, modern Prophets and apostles. And here's what I wanted to I'm doing this in connection with Luke's record keeping because when you look at Luke 3 1 through 3, he starts out by placing this whole John the Baptist in the context of the Roman Empire. And then Luke finishes chapter 3 with the genealogy of Jesus, tracing uh, Jesus through his stepfather or adopted father, Joseph, then all the way back through Joseph to. Uh, Adam and then to God. By the way here's something interesting, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, I need to apologize to everyone because I secretly want to be a medievalist. Like I've always dreamed of being a New Testament scholar but I'm now being seduced into wanting to be a medievalist (laughs) and I don't know why but there's just something fascinating about the the medieval world but in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle you have the genealogies of the Anglo-Saxon kings and you see their kingly line and in many cases, it goes back to Woden. And I found that so interesting because the Christian authors of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle probably didn't even believe in Woden literally. Uh, but that's the sources that they were uh, transmitting. Hold up, man. And so my Do you point literally the-
0: mean the All-Father, like Odin?
1: Yeah, Odin is the Norse and Woden is the um, Anglo-Saxon
0: What on god. earth?
1: Okay. I did not know this. Yeah. But, yeah, sorry, yeah, Go it's ahead. The same. but, um yeah, so the, the the and I think there's this interest, and you can see this in in Greek heroes, they the folks in Athens would, oh, I'm descended from from Hercules or Pericles or uh, and then ultimately Zeus, of course. But anyway, my point is, just because the front end of a genealogy is historical doesn't mean everything on that back end. Uh, is free from legend or mythology mm-hmm. or anything like that. Um, so I think, for me, there's no evidence that Adam literally existed. Uh, I think when you read Genesis one through three, it's clearly a symbol of all humanity, right? Adam, that's what it. Hello, that's what it means. Yeah. Um, and so I don't think Noah, we don't need to take Noah literally. We don't need to take Adam literally. We don't need to take Abraham literally as, as historical people. We should be free to go option three and say, look, we've got historical people that have their stories grafted onto a, um, a prehistoric past that m- may have myth and legend. And I'm OK with that because there's human fingerprints in the scriptures. But anyway, let me follow up. This, this talk about like human fingerprints and embarrassing things in the scriptures with some strategies for reading and navigating the mistakes of modern prophets and apostles. And I'm going to draw upon uh, Moroni here. So Moroni says in some editorial material in Ether 1225, quote, when we write, we behold our weakness and stumble because of the placing of our words. And I fear lest the Gentiles shall mock at our words, close quote. Then later, Moroni also says in Mormon 9.31, Condemn me not because of mine imperfection, neither my father because of his imperfection, neither them who have written before him, but rather give thanks unto God that he hath made manifest unto you our imperfections that ye may learn to be more wise than we have been. And I find this so beautiful. And I've, we've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. but um, And I think it's not just, oh, they did something in their private daily life that's sinful. No, it's their writings. Mm-hmm. They're not talking about, oh, I slipped up here and it's just not recorded. They're talking about imperfections in their own scriptural writings. And I think that's very clear from the statement, neither them who have written before him. Mm. So, really talking about the imperfection of the writings. Now, Nate Oman on Facebook said something very interesting. And here I'm just going to quote it in full, uh, or at least this paragraph in full. Quote, believers need to find a way of negotiating these passages. Oh, pause. I have to talk. He's, he's talking about, well, what do we do when the scriptures teach? Stuff that is abhorrent to our values and what we know now, and uh, you know, all the all the issues, right? Mm-hmm. Slavery, genocide, uh, misogyny, racism, any, yeah, any of any number of the oh, and yeah, there's, we've got to, we've got, well, anyway, here's what he's talking about. Nate Oman says, believers need to find a way of negotiating these passages without rejecting the authority of Scripture or succumbing to their example and becoming moral monsters. With that in mind, I was struck this morning by the passage in Mormon 9.31, which suggests a providential role for bad scriptural examples, quote, that ye may learn to be more wise than we have been. It suggests a model of scripture reading that is interactive rather than passive. We are not only to take wisdom from the text, but also bring wisdom to it. Mm. So we can look at, um, you know, the racist passages in the Book of Mormon and say, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're wiser than Mm -hmm. that. And I think we can do the same thing with President Oaks. Back to Oaks. Yep. We may take wisdom from Oaks, but we're also going to bring wisdom to oaks and say look um some of what oaks says is an example of what not to do Mm -hmm. so that we can learn to be more wise than he has been Mm -hmm. and i think that is a and that's why i love studying the bible because you get a real feel for the limitations of scripture the human fingerprints the biases like all the mistakes like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we as latter-day saints don't believe in the inerrancy of the scriptures Mm -hmm. anyway uh talking about while we're talking about Luke three one through three, which I think I just want to read real quick all right um let's see okay, this is in the new English translation. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, by the way, Augustus was the previous Caesar at the, at the Jesus' birth. Now, during the ministry, it's Tiberius Caesar. Mm-hmm. When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, by the way, this Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, is not Herod the Great. This is Herod Antipas. Mm-hmm. Just, just they have all these same names. But anyway. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So I love how Luke is situating this in a certain time and a certain place. He, even the year. We know it's in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius mm-hmm. Caesar. So... What, what am I doing with this? What I want to say is that Roman power was centralized. Mm-hmm. In contrast, New Testament Christianity was not centralized. And when you look at the Hebrew prophets, they just popcorned out of anywhere and nowhere, right? There, um, I mean, there was some cultic temple authority that was centralized, but, th- but there were, that wasn't the only um, cultic shrine in, in uh, the Hebrew Bible or that Jews had. So my point is that when we look at the New Testament records, there's no Starbucks. It's not a corporation, it's not a centralized corporation. New Testament Christianity was not centralized. In fact, the fa- the re- the reality that we have four different gospels that paint distinct portraits of Jesus shows that look we had these things emerging all over the place and and they weren't correlated Mm -hmm. like having four gospels is the opposite of correlation (laughs) Um, new testament christianity was a wave of disorganized movements Um, and paul by the way was part of the disorganization but also part of the trying to get it organized Mm -hmm. but new testament christianity was a wave of disorganized movements rather than any centralized institution like paul's authority came out of nowhere he says in the beginning of galatians john the baptist came out of nowhere right Jesus in a way came out of nowhere. Uh by out of nowhere I mean without official authority from anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh in the 4th century, Rome converted to Christianity, but also Christianity converted to Rome. It adopted the Roman ways of of uh, the, the the Roman imperial strategies of colonizing and systematizing and organizing and Uh, All these isings. Mm. Anyway, so that's kind of what I wanted to say because that should enlighten our expectations of the contemporary church, which is a restored New Testament church. We are the restored New Testament church. So that's kind of what we're we're working with. Mm. Anyway, I don't know if you had any thoughts about these things or else I would go on to talk (laughs) a little bit more about um, what. Well, let me just do one more thing about John the Baptist. We see in Matthew 3, 9. That, uh, or no, Matthew 3, 4, his dress and diet. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about that is they signal that he's on the margins, that he's an institutional outsider, that he's out in the wilderness, right? And this is, um, the camel hair clothing and the-
0: Eating locusts locusts and honey. Locusts and wild honey, Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's kind of what what we're working with. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on all these things?
0: Well, also, let's point out that he's in the wilderness, which is often a point or a right. place of... Uh, it's also a marginalized place in a way, or a liminal space, how, however you want to look at it. Mm-hmm. Like the wilderness back then and even now, I hear a lot of Christians refer to these kind of like in-between phases of their uh, faith journeys as wilderness experiences. Um, it's not a place of... Comfort or excitement. It's a barren place of uh, preparation, of exploration, of development for what God is planning to do with you next. And uh, I find it interesting that a lot of John's uh, or the primary place of his ministry, you know, is in the wilderness. He's preaching in the wilderness of Judea and calling people to repent. In there, he is helping people. He's preparing people for what's next in that very symbolic space of uh, the wilderness. He was basically hosting a whole revival in the wilderness that basically said, what is coming next, which is, who is the Messiah? So, you know, you better get ready. Um, But yeah, I just wanted to take a moment to point out that uh, John, in addition to being on the margins, in addition to uh, being the person to point the way, To what's coming next, to Christ, uh, is also preaching from a place that is normally associated with barrenness, with questioning, with figuring out the next step, and with some kind of uh, uh, opportunity for stretching Mm -hmm. or development, developing or changing. That's what the wilderness is ultimately. And we're going to see this again with Jesus Christ as well, right? We don't really get to talk about Jesus Christ's wilderness experience uh, in these chap- like in these chapters. It's briefly alluded to in one of the books, but we don't really get to talk about uh, the temptation of Christ in the wilderness in any great length until next week, I think. So I'll just leave that be for now. Right.
1: Yeah, and so Mark is the one that has just a very short, brief, naming of the temptation uh-huh. but it's matthew and mark in the next chapters four in matthew 4 and luke 4 mm-hmm. that fills out what mark just hints at right i'm curious what you have to say about john the baptist's teachings and being of the lineage of abraham tell me
0: tell us about yeah, that bro um again, I love Luke. You know, I love Luke. He's uh, definitely one of my, like, this is definitely one of my favorite uh, gospel writers simply because of how he situates things. Um, Like when you went to Luke, when you read the beginning of Luke, this was yet another reminder that Luke was situating us at a time of uh, Roman occupation, of Roman imperialism, of Roman oppression. And uh, this is, again, the context in which uh, John the Baptist is speaking. As John is beginning um his public ministry in the wilderness um he is reminding people and speaking to people in this context of roman oppression and you know that'll be relevant in just a little bit as we listen to his particular teaching so let me just go ahead and head down to uh this whole notion of being children of abraham this is in uh, luke 3 and uh we're getting to Uh, John the Baptist teaching. So we get that little bit of poetry between verse uh, four and six. Uh, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, this is quoting the prophet Isaiah, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So What happens next in the midst of this uh, call for repentance, John already can predict what is happening, and he says to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. And then anticipating possible objections, he says in verse 8, do not begin to say to yourselves we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Now, before I proceed, I just want to point out that God basically does do this. He basically, God basically does this later when uh, they open the ministry or decide to preach to, you know, the Gentiles. They, They may not, Raise up children of Abraham from stones, but they do uh, raise up seed, raise up children of Abraham from you know who the Jews view as the dirty, dirty Gentiles. So now we are getting to this point where John is already prophesying, not just for for his day necessarily, but also to a future day where God will literally bring up children of Abraham through uh, the Gentiles, through people who are not of the Mm -hmm. seed of Abraham, and uh, I'll explain how exactly he does this. Now, we've briefly mentioned the significance of this passage before, though I don't really remember the context. I'm sure there would have been ample opportunity to bring it up, but I wanted to highlight John's two warnings here because it's relevant to us, and I think most of our listeners would catch it anyway, but I want to name it and see if uh, you, Derek, care to riff on it at all. But John is exhorting the people to repentance, telling them to bear fruits worthy of repentance, which in other words means demonstrate your professed faith in God by doing righteousness. That's what he's exhorting them to do. And then there's a second warning, to not assume safety due to being descendants of Abraham. John might feel especially a way about this because God, I mean, for one thing, God did actually execute judgment on the people of Israel before, And two, they were currently under foreign rule, and that was an indication that the nation had forsaken God in the past. Basically, John's like, y'all ain't special. Y'all may be Abraham's children, but that's not sufficient. Y'all got to do the work, and the way it looks, y'all ain't doing it. That's basically what he's saying. And in the church, I believe a similar warning is merited. And I say that because I don't feel... A ton of urgency among the saints where repentance is concerned or demonstrating professed faith in God is concerned, uh, at least not through the ways prescribed uh, by Christ himself. Sometimes it feels like people take a little too much comfort in simply being a card carrying member of the church. They mm-hmm. check the boxes of respectability, things like getting baptized, serving missions, being endowed, getting married, etc not that these things aren't good or important. Mm -hmm. I I think most members would acknowledge that these are good things, but all these things mean something. The same way being an Israelite means something. The same way being a child of Abraham means something. Being God's covenant people means something. Now, being God's covenant people, God's Mm -hmm. chosen people, that, that, that That means God expects things of us and will hold us accountable to those things. We talk a lot about how much God loves being held accountable. Well, God also loves to hold us accountable. God is looking for and expects righteousness from us as God's chosen people, as people who have taken on the baptismal covenant, the temple covenant, the marriage covenant. Paul also seems to validate this line of thinking when he talks about being the children of Abraham, having more to do with how we live than it does with our DNA. Like What I'm trying to get at is it seems that we often put more stock in being a member of the church than being a disciple of Christ, much the same way that children of Israel may have been tempted to put more stock in being children of Israel rather than being accountable to God and their covenants and seeking God's righteousness. I I feel this more at this point in my life where, uh, you know, I feel this at a point where, okay, hold on, let me gather this real quick. I feel this more where people at church know what I do and what I'm doing at school, and when opportunity comes to talk about certain things, problems may arise when I deviate from quote-unquote cultural norms for the sake of trying to follow Christ. Uh, For example, just a couple weeks ago, I got in a pretty heated discussion with an acquaintance at church over the law of chastity because I stated that I believe the way we teach it has no solid theological foundation in scripture or canonized revelation. Now, this isn't to say that there ought not be a sexual ethic we teach, but I said, I think we're missing the mark significantly when our sexual ethic is little more than a cultural identifier that says just don't have sex before marriage. Like a better example might be our commitment to queer phobia or our being apolitical or to policing the way women dress or the way men groom themselves. You know, we're far more committed to these things than we are to saying black lives matter, which is something that I know Jesus would say and often and often say in this day and age. Yet I've seen members respond with apathy. Uh, with ignorance and with hostility to the phrase, I've seen members so narrow minded that they proudly declare that people who don't accept the queer phobic parts of the family proclamation are apostates. I, I think I've had my membership. Wait, well, wait, 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 hold on. Yeah.
1: So you're telling me that there's there's white members in Harlem mm-hmm. that don't say Black Lives
0: Matter. I mean, I'm sure there are. I don't know specifically. I mean, I know okay. some. Okay. Specifically, who don't? Because
1: okay. but... I didn't know if you were like talking about something in your local ward or no. I'm
0: talking. What? I'm talking about members of the church generally. I've had very oh, few okay. unpleasant okay. run-ins with people like actually in my ward. I love Harlem ward, but like I, I, I don't. Mo- most of what I'm talking about now does not come from there. Uh, but anyway, I, I mm-hmm. think okay. I've had my membership question a lot in the last three months, more in the last three months than I have in the last decade, simply because I deviate from cultural norms in an effort to follow Christ. And I feel like I defend those deviations well, um, but it still doesn't always Mm -hmm. seem good enough. Like I do that in an effort to follow Christ and focus more on justice. Like someone on the internet actually called me Korahor last week. And while it did make me feel better about myself a little bit, it felt profoundly sad that merely disagreeing with just one teaching made me an antichrist to her. That's how much of a hold or better put a priority Mm -hmm. community identity is to us rather than Christian discipleship. And that worries me. Uh, But to bring it back, I I worry a lot, especially now that we stress about the wrong things and that we're not focused on the right things, the best things as a church. And that's going to cost us. I mean, it's costing us now, if I'm being honest. (laughs) I mean, we've talked about this before too. It's costing us credibility in a more Justice oriented world. It's costing us members and too often our best members. And subsequently, it's costing us opportunities for growth that we desperately need in an ever changing and seemingly more apocalyptic world that we are supposed to light. Like, how are we going to light the world if our focus isn't on the sun of God? Like, and, and, and further, and to further reinforce, That John was talking about justice and righteous living when he talked about what it meant to be children of Abraham. And by the way, justice and righteousness, mishpat and tzedakah, these are the most commonly repeated concepts in the Hebrew Bible. John goes on to answer the question of what shall we do to these folks in verses 11 through 14. Let's look at that. This is the NRSV that I'm reading from, by the way. Um, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. And then to the tax collectors, he said in verse 13, collect no more than the amount prescribed to you. And to the soldiers, he said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. Close quote. So repentance, then, according to John, is validated by how we relate to is is basically how we relate to others. That's what he's outlining as the fruits meet for repentance. And this is, again, validated by Paul when he says that the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's Galatians 5. So, yeah, when it comes to bringing forth fruit, meet for repentance, and what it is to be a child of Abraham, I think it's very important to note that this is less an identity marker based on DNA and more one based on How we act in the real world, how we act when it comes to our neighbor like this. I feel like this is basically what the whole Bible whittles down to is a social ethic. That's basically who Jesus was when you really get down to it. He was less a religious leader and more a social ethicist. He was basically teaching us how to treat other people. And this is what John is doing now. Mm hmm
1: yeah I just want to like add another witness to everything you said about John the Baptist being a social justice prophet and an economic justice prophet. Um, I want to make sure that people don't misinterpret John's teaching about being content with your wages in a modern Western economy with inflation and um, and those type of things, right? He's not speaking to issues in our kind of economy where there is a a negotiation over wages and and he's not telling us oh you can't ask for better wages that's not what he's saying the contrast that john is addressing is not oh well the soldiers are are dissatisfied so they're just going to ask their employer for more for more money no that's not the contrast the contrast is they're not satisfied so they're going to go rob others and extort others see that's the problem Mm -hmm. so asking for higher wages by itself isn't in our context, what John is addressing. Right, right. But I do want to talk about and underscore everything you said about this lineage of Abraham because mm-hmm. that can play out in different ways. Okay. That can play out literally um, in terms of racism and ethnic pride and people saying, well, I'm so glad that I'm European or whatever right. it is. And people literally boasting in their own Lineage. It can also talk about biological families, like, I'm so glad that I'm, you know, born to my parents, and it's, you know, this whole biological supremacy, right? Yeah. Or it could see also be spiritual. Yeah. It could also be spiritual. Like, I see people, like, I'm boasting that my line of authority comes from, from Joseph Smith and Brigham. Like, you know, Jesus never boasted in his line of authority he was the authority right and i think <laughs> so often authority comes out of nowhere mm-hmm. like melchizedek came out of nowhere he not uh, not a son uh, not a descendant of levi because levi didn't exist yet but not even jewish not even had no lineage no father no mother as as uh, the author of hebrews says and if you look at paul's authority came out of nowhere mm-hmm. he says right i didn't get it from any man mm-hmm. Um. Just God hit me on the road to Damascus, and that's my authority. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus' authority came out of nowhere. John the Baptist's authority came out of nowhere. Joseph Smith's authority came out of nowhere. He says, look, God showed up to me, right? Alma's authority in the Book of Mormon came out of nowhere. It just comes out of nowhere. I mean, like, this boasting in authority can end up quickly becoming domineering and abusive and shutting down a vibrant, healthy Christian community where love and grace and mutuality are emphasized. I want to talk a little bit about this. Um, uh, how how Matthew three verse nine decenters, uh, like you said, the biological family. Matthew three right? nine. Yeah, it, you quoted it in 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 the Luke version, <laughs> but yeah. yeah, Abraham is our father. Like that is literally what what straight people say. Like, oh, we've got the the proper family, right? You know, God can can raise up children from from stones. So how dare you say that heterosexual sex is the only way to have children? Like mm-hmm. this makes no sense to me. Yeah. Like no sense. Like it decenters. Uh, heterosexual sex, it decenters lineage, it decenters the the biological nuclear family. Like we need to like let God be God and not worry about um you know, family is kind of one of these funny words, mm-hmm. right? I think if you look at I was reading the church handbook and it talks about how God's plan is to seal us all in families plural. I'm mean, like, why not just use the word family? We're all one family. Mm-hmm. We're all literally biologically related like we're all descended from a common ancestor whether you take the the adam and eve literally or whether you take the evolutionary facts of the world literally we're all descended from the same people like we're all one family um and we're all one family with with all the animals too but anyway and and the plants but my point is what is my point um (laughs) john the baptist really decenters the biological family here and says you know wake up like stop bragging about who you're descended from or your family connection you need to just realize well god could bring authority out of nowhere god Mm -hmm. could bring children out of nowhere Mm -hmm. god could bring whatever out of nowhere Mm -hmm. so um but speaking and people are gonna say well derek you're anti-family i'm like no i'm pro-family i'm just Expanding the definition of family, just like Jesus expanded the definition of neighbor mm-hmm. for some
0: people, and he expanded the definition uh, of family as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, he. Um, and we'll get to that later. In about uh, to say not
0: these chapters, but I'm sure we're going to yes, talk a lot yeah. about this when we get to the apostles yeah, in, in Mark yeah. three
1: with with who is my who's who is my uh, mother and Ooh, sister and
0: brother. That was cold blooded, Jesus. But, that was cold blooded. I can't wait till we get to that story, honestly. That's one of my favorite Jesus yeah. stories in the Bible. But
1: here's—I don't know what people think we're doing. Like, I'm not trying to get rid of families. I just want to put a quick footnote to what Plato said in uh, in The Republic. So here's Plato's view. He says, you know what, this, you know— inheritance of goodwill and connection and property and money and advantage is a problem. So we're going to make everything just by no one knows who their kids are. Hmm. No one knows who their kids are. So basically what happened is um, you wouldn't have like husbands and wives. You would have men and women. I think they would get randomly or somehow they would get assigned and they would mate with each other. And as soon as the woman gave birth, they took the baby away. And so... Uh, oh, and, and also the women mated with multiple men. So they didn't even know who the father of the baby was. Mm-hmm. And then they uh, then they t- take the baby away and they raise the babies in common. Right? So no one knows who their father is. No one knows who their kids are. No one knows any of that. So you're going to treat everyone equally because we're all equal. And I think Plato in the end, is making a point about the constitution of the soul and how in your soul everything needs to be on the same page or else you'll you'll be a corrupt, unjust person. I don't think – it's it's not clear that he's taking this as like, oh, actually, you should implement this literally politically. Like I don't know if that's, that's what he really meant. But that's what getting rid of, quote, the family would be. I'm not trying to get rid of the family. I'm just trying to stop discrimination against families that just don't look like you. Mm other peoples. Right. And speaking of families and different family configurations, um, let's talk about Matthew 3.15. And this is the whole thing about baptism. Uh, The baptism of Jesus, though he was sinless, was necessary to fulfill all righteousness in part as an example for everyone else. Mm. So I, it's clear that the new Testament teaches baptism for all, Christian followers of Jesus. That's part of the, part of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But you know what's not ever taught is marriage. The New Testament never teaches that marriage is for everybody. Mm-hmm. It does not have uh, the marriage of Jesus as an example to fulfill all righteousness. Mm-hmm. So what the, what the haters in the church need, they need in the New Testament Jesus being explicitly married and then a comment saying this was necessary to fulfill all righteousness that doesn't exist hmm. that exists for baptism but not for marriage mm-hmm. if uh, now i can't prove that jesus wasn't married because there's theoretically a ch- chance that he could have been married historically and it never survived this fact just never survives in the record that is theoretically possible but It doesn't matter because it's not—I'm not responsible for it. If it happened and it never was recorded, if it's not in our canonical scriptures, it's not in our canonical scriptures anywhere, the Book of Mormon, the DNC, none of them say that Jesus was married, right? I am not responsible for believing that Jesus is married if it's not in our canonical text. So don't anyone dare use that against me and say, well, Jesus was married, so you have to be too. Like that's that's literally the opposite of what matthew three fifteen is teaching here that Jesus was baptized as an example to fulfill all righteousness, and now we're all we all know about that and we're all accountable to that example mm-hmm. but it's likely in my view that Jesus actually was historically single or at least um that's what the indications from first corinthians nine uh is probably our best e- evidence for that because Paul knew. Uh, didn't know Jesus directly, but knew um, Jesus's family, knew some of the inner early circle of the disciples. And in his argument in First Corinthians 9, Paul says, Well, look, don't I have the right to marry a believing wife if I want to, just like Peter did, and just like some of these apostles did? And almost certainly, if Paul knew. Or had any evidence that Jesus was married, he would have put Jesus there too, as the prime example. Mm-hmm. But because Paul and this is an argument from silence, yes, but it tips to me, the balance in favor of the fact that Paul had no evidence that Jesus was married, and it's likely that he would have, if he knew Jesus' family and the close disciples. So my point is that John the Baptist was single. Jesus was single. Melchizedek apparently was single because he, he, the whole point is he has no family in, uh, in Hebrews. The brother of Jared was likely single because we don't have any no uh, naming of wife or offspring or husband. Maybe he was gay. I don't know. But um, Anna the prophet was a widow long after she could have remarried. I mean, there's a place for single prophets in the church mm-hmm. and, and male and female. Prophets. I mean, Philip's four virgin daughters, by definition, were single and uh, were prophetesses. They prophesied. Like, where's where's the single prophets? Um, and prophets come in from the margins. And so, like, we can see this example deconstructing people's assumptions about, oh, you gotta get married or else you can't see grandma again. That that's abusive and manipulative. Yeah. That's not even what our doctrine is. Mm-hmm. We've got a really uh, primary-esque simplified version of our doctrine that gets distorted even when you, re- I've said this before even when you read DNC 132 it's not nothing about quote being together sealing mm-hmm. is nothing about seeing each other again, that is, those words do not appear in DNC 132 there are different promises associated with sealing, and it's not about, quote, being together as a family or, quote, seeing one another again or, quote, being together. That is not what – this is like a Disney-fied missionary uh, presentation of what our what, – and, and DNC 132 has problems anyway. I'm not going to get into that. But I want to just name, like, Christianity de-centers the biological family, like Mark one twenty uh says immediately Jesus called them that is James and John the sons of Zebedee and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired man and followed him Welp. just right there on the spot left their fa- left their biological father right which is something a queer queer people have to do sometimes we have to leave our biological families mm-hmm. in order to be true to our own um identity mm-hmm. so Yeah, there's just so many amazing things I want to talk about here. Um, Matthew 3.11 has something very interesting. Uh, It says, I baptize you with water for repentance. And this is before the baptism. We haven't gotten to the baptism of Jesus yet. But the one coming after me is more powerful than I am. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Notice John the Baptist, who's a true prophet, Notice his humility, mm-hmm. his centering of Jesus, pointing, the one coming after me. It's all about Jesus. It's not about um, more powerful than I am. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals, mm-hmm. right? John is not inflating his authority. He is very much um, qualifying that and and decentering himself. And this is something that I'm expecting of modern prophets and apostles today. Mm-hmm. Um, it's if it's what I would do if I were in their, in their shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so I want to just talk about that. Cause we talked about sort of this, um, outside world situation, what's going on with the outside world mm-hmm. and, uh, our missionary work. And there is accountability towards outsiders because most Latter-day Saints somehow get this idea that, Oh, um, we can do whatever we want and, and we don't have to explain it to the outside world and, it's the world, and we don't owe them anything. And there's a sense in which that's not true in the New Testament uh, record. First Timothy 3.7 says, and he, this is the bishop because uh, the author of First Timothy is, is naming the qualifications of bishop, and he must be well thought of by those outside the faith so that he may not fall into disgrace and be caught by the devil's trap. And then Titus 2, 7 and 8, also about um, a similar situation, the qualifications for church leaders. In your your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and a sound message that cannot be criticized so that any opponent will be at a loss because he has nothing evil to say about us. So we've got these texts that say, look, if you're so bad that others realize you're awful, that looks bad, right? It doesn't... you need to have dignity and respect with outsiders. So if we're if the rest of the world is improving on racism and we aren't, well, that doesn't look good. Mm. And it's we can't ever say, oh, well, we're just we're, we're, we're the true church. So we don't have to do what the world does. No, we got to be better than the world on these issues. And I love the fact that these leaders are accountable towards insiders and towards outsiders. Another good example of accountability towards outsiders is in DNC 71, verse 7. It says, Wherefore confound your enemies call upon them to meet you both in public and in private. And inasmuch as ye are faithful, their shame shall be made manifest. Wherefore, let them bring forth their strong reasons against the Lord. It says very clearly, public accountability. Have hard questions given to you as church leaders in public and in private. Like, let them, let them bring their complaints. I don't like this idea, that our church leaders are enculturated and groomed to tell us, well, don't complain. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't do that. Like, we're in charge. You know, all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, here's my problem is I'm not actually, I, I, I've been thinking about this very deeply for hours and hours over the past weeks. I'm not actually blaming the church leaders as much as I am the culture that created them. Mm-hmm. Because these col- these church leaders were groomed by a system and handpicked for their loyalty to the system. They didn't create the system. I mean they they helped perpetuate and co-create it, mm-hmm. but none of them uh sought power. Uh none of them asked to be, as far as I know, a prophet or an apostle. They were picked. And they were called. And that doesn't excuse their choices, but what I'm saying is this isn't they are products of the system as much as they are creators of the system. Mm-hmm. And What does that mean? Our culture. People say I treat the the church leaders bad. I'm actually on their side. I sustain them. I want them to be stronger. I want them to be better. I want them to be healthier. I want them to be less vulnerable to criticism by being better. I think it's our culture. That idolizes them, that sets them up for unrealistic expectations, that treats them like royalty and celebrities. And insulates that them is from that criticism. is that is the worst thing. That is mistreating them. That is that is abusing them. Actually, I think the fact that we don't let them retire is abuse. Like, like certain after after someone is is too old and they don't want or can't uh, function the way that they need to to lead the church, we should let them grace graciously retire. The fact that we propped up President Monson for like two years after he was able to do the job and and just kind of pretended we had a prophet, mm-hmm. like that's abuse. He should have just been home with his grandkids. Like this isn't that's that's it's abuse for the sake of this this cultural expectation that people put on the church leaders. And I'm like, I'm gonna defend these church leaders. Poor things. Bless their heart. They are being put in a very unfair situation by a culture that worships them, that idolizes them, that treats them like they can't go to Costco. Did you know that? They can't go to Costco. What? Right. No, I didn't know that. Because everyone's going to harass them, and everyone's going to ask for their signature, and they uh, they can't go to Walmart. They can't go shopping. They can't go to restaurants without being annoyed by everyone and, and paparazzi, uh, uh, right? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying co- they can't go in Costco, but they aren't free. They can't live a normal life. They can't go do what they want. They can't. And some people say, well, maybe that's part of the— um, the sacrifice you make when you're a prophet is you don't get to do what you want but this is this is on another level this is not way worse right other church leaders don't get this rock star effect mm-hmm. and the part of what we do is we put them on a pedestal as the feminists have taught us a pedestal is a prison mm-hmm. like we don't give them wiggle room i mean not you and me but our culture is cruel to them by not letting them retire not letting them admit they're wrong not letting them apologize we as a people don't let them say that they're wrong because we are so insecure that that we just can't handle it if they went out and said you know what we were wrong about that mm-hmm. like that's why we haven't gotten an apology for the dispossession of of black folk in this church is because the people will lose will it, I, I don't know and and, and it's just we don't let them express vulnerability we don't let them disagree with one another publicly we don't let them we are abusing the church leaders by not letting them do what moroni did and said you know what i've got weaknesses be wiser than i am we don't let them be moroni we don't let them be john the baptist we just put them in this 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 box of royalty and celebrity and don't let them yeah i don't i don't know why they don't feel free to apologize, I think they really would love to. They really would love to apologize, but we don't let them. Um, we don't let them retire. And of course, my my proof text for saying that they can re- retire is Mosiah 4.27 That and see that all these things are done in wisdom and in order, for it is not requisite that a man should run faster than he has strength. If someone doesn't have strength to they should they should they should have emeritus status like our church would be so much healthier so function so much better we'd have anyway so yeah these church these poor church leaders they didn't choose this and we've done this to them by putting them in this in this awful awful box that that is, is like a straitjacket, right um like I, they're, they they feel trapped. They can't admit they're wrong. They can't change very well. I wish that we, they could. I think there's a lot of stuff that they would change, but they have to find these, Um, they have to find really creative and strategic ways of making change and making it not seem like a change. You know that old light bulb joke, right? Like how many Mormons does it take to change
0: a light bulb? Oh, gosh. Um No, I don't think I know this joke, but I think I know where it's going. Something about wanting to change it and then everybody else to say it was always screwed in or something like that. Yeah,
1: I think so. Like one person to change it and then everyone else to say, oh, that wasn't really a change. Right. (laughs) But ironically, we're built on change. Like the revelation is unfolding line upon line. I wish they would get up there and say, you know what? We used to think women shouldn't be uh, priesthood holders, but that was the line we were on, and now we know better, and we're on a different line, and we learned line upon line, and we're sorry for the damage that this has caused, Mm -hmm. right? If they wanted to do that, our culture doesn't let them do that, Mm. right? It has extremely unrealistic expectations, and unrealistic expectations lead to uh, crises of expectations when they're not met, because... These impossible, unrealistic expectations—they're going to be dashed, and that's why we have all these people leaving the church. Um, there's many reasons people leave the church, but but that's kind of well. I'm rambling way off the topic of what I wanted to talk about. Um, it's all good. Like, where yeah. are we on time? Oh dear, this is a problem. Oh, gosh, we got like five um, minutes, if if not, if less, if not less. <laughs> well, other stuff I can find another time to talk about, but I wanted to say. Uh, two Two more things is is a little bit of human fingerprints in the baptism of of Jesus, so there's some interesting things and if you have a synopsis uh out there that has it all in parallel columns, it makes it much much easier to do to do these things so what's interesting about Luke is he changes his mark and source in a very interesting way so Luke, uh, so Mark in has the the imprisonment of John the Baptist later in Mark six after the baptism, and and Matthew has it in M- Matthew fourteen also after the baptism of Jesus. So what happens is M- Luke takes the Markan source for the imprisonment of John and ooches it up frontward. And puts it in front of the baptism of Jesus, which creates a problem. Because if you lock up Jesus, if you lock up John before the baptism of Jesus, then Jesus isn't then John's not there to baptize Jesus. So Luke actually kind of disguises that suture in a very interesting way. So Mark 1 9 says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, what Luke 3 does is he has moved the imprisonment of John to just right before this verse and then deletes John and doesn't even say who baptized Jesus, but just uses the passive voice. This is Luke 3, 21. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened. Like So that's very interesting that Putting in the passive voice and deleting John as the one who baptized uh, Jesus is how Luke puts it all together. And I think that's cool. I mean, they have every right to do this uh, for whatever their, their purposes were. Mm-hmm. And another way that we've got um, some some human fingerprints in the text is with the the actual wording of the baptism or, or the, um, the actual wording of... The voice from heaven so here's what happens in mark which is probably first it looks like the voice was heaven the voice from heaven is a personal witness to jesus himself because 110 in mark says and when he came up out of the water that is uh, jesus immediately he jesus saw the heavens opened and the spirit descending upon him like a dove and a voice came from heaven thou art my beloved son With thee, I'm well pleased. I'm in the RSV because that's what this synopsis is. Mm -hmm. And Luke keeps the same, you are my beloved son, but just says a voice came from heaven. So now maybe it's other people witnessed the voice from heaven. So other people heard the voice saying to Jesus, you are my beloved son. But Matthew completely changes the voice from heaven to say, this is my beloved son. With whom I am well pleased, instead of in you I'm well pleased. It's now with whom I'm well pleased, and so everyone hears this voice from heaven. I think that is so interesting how they remember, they uh, record these these things in a way that uh, gets to their personal uh, emphases, like maybe. Mark is focusing on the interior, the personal witness to Jesus himself that he's beloved. And then Matthew is focusing on how this testifies to everyone else. This is third person, my beloved son. I want to talk about this in terms of coming out, because in many ways, Jesus's baptism was a coming out. It was coming out into his identity. It was a public witness of who he really was and what he was about. And in addition to this coming out, you have a divine approval Right. The parental approval of the coming out one. Right. I love you. Right. This is a model for coming out. Mm-hmm. When your kids come out and do what do what <laughs> do what the voice from heaven did and say. Uh, you're my beloved child. With you, I'm well pleased. Um, I had some things to say about monsters, uh, but that's kind of way off topic. We can talk about that another time. Uh, monsters in the medieval world and i've got some
0: exciting things for everyone all right monsters in the medieval world then looking forward to it okay yeah well then
1: well anyway that's all i have then for today
0: all right and i can bring up these uh miracles uh At another time, there will be plenty of opportunity to discuss the significance of the miracles of Jesus Christ as we move forward in our study of the New Testament. So I will forego that for the sake of time, and uh, we will go ahead and wrap things up. Uh, Brother Derek, where can people find us?
1: People can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Also on Twitter and Instagram at btblds. Um. Yeah, that's uh, that's it. I, I encourage others to share beyond the block, like share, share with your friends, family, ward members, anyone who think you can who would benefit from this. Uh, go ahead and share that.
0: Mm-hmm. We're pretty accessible online as well. We haven't been posting a ton, but like, if you guys want to get in touch with us, like, yeah, we're we're pretty active on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can always message us if you guys. You know, got something you want to say, or questions you want to ask, conversations you want to have, whatever else. Uh, we'll make an effort to avail ourselves to talk to y'all in whatever ways that we can. Um, I don't think there's any events we got to put the people on to. Um, you're already in school again, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. One thing I wanted to do is remind people that Black History Month is coming up next oh, month. Good lord! In February, and so brother James Jones has this amazing course available. Thank you. So check that out. Uh, Can you tell people where to find that?
0: Yeah, the uh, website for the online course is btbacademy.thinkific.com. That's thinkific spelled T-H-I-N-K-I-F-I-C dot com. So btbacademy.thinkific.com. I'll just put a link in the show notes um, also appreciate those of y'all who've already reached out about the events that you're hosting for Black History Month. I'm really trying to keep things um lighter this year. I kind of overwhelmed myself last year with just events and things and opportunities. I was grateful for every single one of them, but I stressed myself out, and this year there's already a lot going on um Next month, I'm presenting at the American Academy of Religion uh Christian Kimball just got a book that's coming out there's probably going to be stuff regarding the promotion of that happening I'm actually narrating the Mm -hmm. audio version of that as well uh this is also yeah that's exciting so I apologize in advance that y'all got to listen to me narrate Susan Hinckley's story in my voice like there I'm sure there's going to (laughs) be moments where I'm narrating female voices where it just does not sound right but Y'all get what y'all get. So, But Christian Kimball's book is really good. I definitely would encourage you guys to go out and get it. It it was literally, I feel like, made for our fan base, I guess. Just people who live on the inside of the edge, people on the margins of Mm -hmm. their faith. Um, There's more information on it on his site or uh, by Common Consent Press's uh, page. I think Dialogue has also posted about it because uh, Christian Kimball is on the board uh, for dialogue but um just be on the lookout for that. I think I'll just go ahead and post a link to that as well if I can find it in the uh, show notes. This is also my last semester of school. I'm working on my thesis. I I I just really don't want to do nothing for Black History Month if I'm being honest. I'm so tired and well yeah. <laughs> Anyway, anyway, I don't. I, uh, so I guess we
1: should say goodbye. It's been it's been an hour. Yeah, I don't think I have anything else. So thank you all for
0: joining us. Till we meet again next week.
1: Okay, till we meet again next week. Bye bye.